If you, um, if you read the weekly email this week, I don't know how many people do, um, I had sort of forecasted that I wanted to draw our attention to the book of Ruth today and consider this narrative, this story. And one of the reasons that I do is that this book is one of five books in um, Israelite tradition, in Jewish tradition, that were read at the five annual festivals. So Passover, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Booze, Purim. And Israel would read these stories as a part of that uh, festival. And Ruth's the first book in this group of scrolls, of this book of, um, of readings. And a book like that, as you can imagine, isn't merely kind of um, history telling. Stories like this give a people an identity. They remind a nation of its character, of its essence. And so we ought to go and listen to this story together. And I'll introduce it a little bit. I was um, a little bit um, on the edge this week. I should have had more courage and just told Martha, like, print the whole book of Ruth for us and we'll read it. It wouldn't take us, it's four little chapters, it would have taken us about a minute more. And we could have heard this tale as it kind of unwinds. And here, what the people would imagine is they think about what it means to be an Israelite each festival season. What does it mean to be a people called to serve the Lord? So I'll introduce this story. Um, as a side note, in the Hebrew, um, her name is pronounced Ruth. Um, nothing surprising there. But the book really does actually play on the names of the people and the places where they go. It just happens that Ruth's isn't very tricky or doesn't really seem to have any significance in the story. So, for example, the story starts off and it says, in the land of Bethlehem, there was a famine. A Bethlehem means house of food or house of bread. So immediately the reader is reminded of a fact that this fertile, um, productive place in Israel has no food. Something is not right from the start. And a man from Bethlehem called Elimelech, my God is king, or God is my king, flees the land for Moab. A man fleeing Israel um, suggests that maybe God is not king. You can see how the story begins to unwind and with irony. His wife's name is Naomi, Naomi, which means pleasantness, but it's not pleasant. And so you start this story that sounds like Samuel, it sounds like so many narratives, and yet in the core of it, there is fracture, there is need. And it continues to unfold down a hill. They take their two sons with them, Mechlon and Kilion. They kind of rhyme or sound similar, which mean sickly and dying, which were probably nicknames added by the narrator. One would hope their parents didn't name them sickly and dying. But the point being, like, there's already sickness, there's already need, there's already desperateness in this family as they flee the land of food. This Israelite family. You see, in the process of national storytelling, Israel reminds itself that often we have been in deep need and wandered. And they wander into the land of Moab, which is typically a nation of enemies, the people who are not friendly to the Israelites. And so they go to get food in a place that is not their own, a place where they don't have family and friends and laws protecting them. And we know what happens in this place that Elimelech dies and then the two boys, and we're left with three widows in a foreign land. Desperation. There's nothing there for them. It's the perfect picture of weakness. You're not at home, you don't have men, and you're vulnerable. You have no natural means to bring in income and wealth. You're poor in poverty, you're migrants. 
And so this is the moment when the story turns. That's its very bottom. And Naomi has heard that the Lord has visited Bethlehem with food. And she sets about going her way. And we read today, we know that Naomi and Ruth intend to go back, sorry, Orpah and Ruth intend to go back with their mother-in-law and accompany her to the land. And there's this weeping and pleading that goes back and forth. And Orpah decides to go her way to her family, which she had every right to do, to return to her people, to her mother's house. And Ruth says no, and she clung to her. That's the moment that gets the Israelites. But somebody decided to dig their heels in. In a moment of incredible need, a foreign woman decided, no, do not urge me to leave you. The Lord do more to me if I do not. She takes an oath on herself, a curse, if I do not stay with you. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Your dwelling, my dwelling. Ruth has no obligation to do this. And so the story of deep need turns a corner with a person willing to serve. Our reading cuts off there. They enter back into Bethlehem, and the women greet Naomi, and she calls herself Mara, bitter. Don't call me pleasantness anymore, for the hand of the Lord has been against me. Israel could tell itself that story. We, at moments of life, could tell ourselves that story. Life is bitter right now. And then Ruth gets an idea. I'll go and harvest and glean. This is a right. I read it for you in Deuteronomy 4. A right of the poor and the widow is to follow reapers and pick up food. And so Ruth goes out and reaps for her mother-in-law as a widow. She is a laborer. She is diligent. She is devoted to this woman and her well-being. And this beautiful moment that I just love, Boaz comes back from Bethlehem to the field that he owns and says, who is that woman and who does she belong to? I mean, if you think about an Israelite farmer or agricultural person, if Boaz has this many people working his fields, he's wealthy, almost certainly. And yet he knows when a visitor is in his neighborhood in need. I mean, the eye of somebody looking for the vulnerable Mark's Israel's story as they go back for the Feast of Weeks. A woman who is a foreigner comes home with an Israelite and a man in a field recognizes need when he sees it. And he goes to Ruth in the field and he says to her and he begins to give her food and she says, what reason do I have that you give me this grace? And Boaz says, I heard what you did. The great loving kindness you gave to Naomi when your husband died. It is um, two words that mark the heart of this story that are going to be repeated a couple of times, which I think are the thrust of what Israel is to take away from the story of Ruth. I know the hesed you did. Some of you know that word, hesed, the Hebrew word. It doesn't fit well. It's not translated easily into English. We sometimes translate it loving kindness or mercies. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed are new every morning. But it also carries with it something of generosity, of gratuitousness. I knew how you overflowed with love for Naomi. And so he devotes himself to the care of Ruth. Her reputation has preceded her into Bethlehem. This foreign woman, let's not forget, has shown she knows Hebrew love better than Hebrews. And she brings it into the midst of a broken community and she begins to love. I know the hesed that you did. Naomi, when she says to Ruth and her daughter, she says, go home. 
And may the Lord do this love, this chesed to you as you have done to me. The outpouring of love to people in need tells the story of Israel. Ruth and Boaz, as you know, the story develops. They, um, Ruth, uh, Boaz provides for Ruth, and then Naomi sends her to the threshing floor. And it's Ruth, by the way, who proposes marriage to Boaz. Lays at the threshing floor in the middle of the night, a fairly dangerous place for a woman to be who's not married. She's um, vulnerable to accusation. And she asks for marriage from a man who does not owe her marriage to redeem the family of Naomi. And in this context, this is the second word that's used, she's called a noble woman or a woman of valor. Jewish translations almost always use the word valor. English translations, I think, water it down with an excellent woman or a noble woman, but it's a woman of valor. She's courageous. She's extraordinary. I know the reputation you have for being a person who builds up life. This phrase, a noble woman or a woman of valor, is only used one other time in the Bible, of a woman. It's almost always used of men of war or people of armies or of strong men. And the other incidence that it's used is of that woman in Proverbs 31, a woman of valor who can find, not an excellent wife, a courageous woman, a city builder who knows agriculture, who knows social justice, who knows hard work, who knows the markets and the economy, who loves her husband and cares for kids and serves her maidens. She is a city builder, a woman of valor. And it's not a coincidence these two women are called women of valor. In the Hebrew version of the Bible, the book of Ruth follows Proverbs 31 immediately. These two stories of women of love, hesed, and valor, both terms used in their context. The people who build up society and its brokenness, the people who fill out its life and its markets, who find the needy and the poor, that says of the woman in Proverbs 31, she opens her hands to the poor and gives to the needy. Hesed, valor, courage. This storytelling of Israel's life in a moment of desperation and dark need, what should you do? How has God saved Israel with foreign women of inconsequential merit in the world? These women build up society. I've said if we want to bring this to our own context, you can imagine how it would impact Israel. Their own infighting, their own inequality, their own lack of justice, the poor in their midst. This story reminds them of the great generosity and courage that saves its nation again and again with simple, out-of-the-way people. Um, over the weeks of this year, I've tried to highlight this fact that I think Christians ought to understand about modern society, about our modern culture, that it's been documented since, say, the 1950s or 60s, which is the breakdown of society, of the, the basic fabric of social structures. Churches are in decline. Volunteer groups and organizations are in decline. Neighborhood organizations, neighborly activities, neighborly clubs are in decline. This is what I mean by the social networking and fabrics. Loneliness is on the increase. Singleness is on the increase. They're increasingly isolated society with people who don't have Ruths and Boazes in their life to redeem and love them. And the social scientists who describe this often in very general terms say that the conservatives rely upon the marketplace and the economy 
to gin out enough money and product that the revenue will be spread and it will attend to those social needs and the gaps. And the progressives, meanwhile, expect government to build up programs to attend for all the social needs arising in the gaps. And I'm no economist, but I don't think either one of these is ever sufficient on their own to attend to the need in their midst. But apart from those two, what the story of Ruth is telling us is to build up what neither one can do, the individual human life. Look at these two stories, Ruth and Boaz, they just choose to love one person. And that's the extraordinary thing about the story. Ruth just loves one woman, Boaz just loves her back. And from Ruth is born Obed, and Obed is Jesse, and Jesse is David, and without Ruth there is no David. The story is meant to be like that. This simple Moabite woman made possible the kingship of Israel by acts of loving kindness in a social place among the needy. I think this story, the church is one of the last places in our culture to attend to this kind of social building, love and valor and hesed and generosity. I'll bring us to the New Testament as a close here, but I want to come to Luke just by way of Matthew 1 and 2. If you know the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he tells the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth is the genealogy of David. And Matthew tells a very artistic telling. He tells of three sets of 14 generations between Abraham and the Christ. And as Matthew tells this story, there are 42 people in the genealogy. And 38 of them are men. And four, as you might guess, are Gentile women or Gentile associations. Rahab, Ruth, Tamar, Bathsheba. Women who were righteous. Women who were not Israelites and yet acted better than Israelites that were in their midst. You can see how the narrative storytelling that was in Ruth is picked up by the story of Jesus. What kind of people can be Jesus' disciples? Well, simple, out-of-the-way Moabite women will do just fine to build a kingdom. They can love a neighbor and afford, they can fill in the social spaces of the world with courage and valor and love. A simple little piece at a time, not fixing world structures that may be broken. Just attend to the needy, be like Boaz in the field, and take note of a need that you may give to in a moment. I love, I'll end here, this image of Jesus walking and these ten lepers look over and say, Jesus, Master, have mercy upon us. And who's the one who comes back to give thanks? But a foreigner, a Gentile. Who of us, I think, Luke is saying, qualifies to be a disciple of Jesus? Anyone who will sit at his feet and give thanks. It is a great welcome to us. You may not be people of great power and of great intelligence, or we may not be people of great significance in the world, but if we love people with great courage and great valor, God can use that to build his kingdom. May he do so through us. Amen.